usually like I try to um, write notes and stuff and I missed out on the first one. So, okay. So let me go back. <laughs> Sorry about that. And thank you for telling me I wasn't recording. All right. So as I, I, I mentioned, where we left off in our last uh, lecture is we were talking about the goals of psychology, which are to describe, understand, predict, and control human behavior and mental processes. But in the, in the way of investigation, psychology has decided to take a scientific approach instead of a philosophical approach or a non-scientific approach to understanding human behavior and mental processes. So what has happened is there is a, a whole number of pseudo psychologies. If you go to the local bookstore, go on, on amazon.com and, and type uh, self-help, you'll get all kinds of pseudo psychologies which give all kinds of advice Sometimes it is based on some pretty good solid science. Other times it's just based on experience and observation of the author or what the author has discovered. So when we talk about uh, uh, movements that use the non-scientific method to understand mental processes and human behavior, we call these pseudo or false or pseudo psychologies. So, but the, the issue becomes, the issue becomes is that when we get to these pseudo psychologies, they do have truth in reality. It's just kind of a stretch of that truth. It's kind of a, an interpretation of that truth as it relates to human behavior and mental processes. And so, so when we, so, uh, well, let me just get into this. So what are some of the pseudo psychologies? And we can think of probably one of the most famous ones that actually came out of the field of psychology and out of physiology is the idea of phrenology. And the idea of phrenology is that the shape of your skull reveals some type of personality trait that you have. So if we look in this example uh, here, a person who maybe uh, uh, has a, a dent right here in their head they might be subject to liking or enjoying hip hop, okay? Or if they have a dent or a bump right here, they're, 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 um, they're acclimated to be an artist or into drawing or something like this. Now, this seems ridiculous in a lot of ways. If you can fill your skull and say, oh, my personality is because of these shapes and everything, here is the grounding in fact that phrenology actually bring out. Now, let me explain that phrenology occurred in the 1800s. Um, and, and if you were 
doing a roaring party at your house, for example, instead of hiring a DJ or making sure that you have some very cool movies to play, you would hire a phrenologist to come to your house or a comedian or something, but phrenologists were very popular. And instead of watching the DV or the DJ or whoever, the band, you would watch the phrenologist do their work on people's heads and, and, and predict what their personalities would be like. The question becomes though is, is this fact or is this fiction about these areas of the brain that are specialized for certain purposes and can you tell them by filling their skull or filling the shape of their skull? The answer is yes and no, at least to the first proposition. The first proposition being, is there's areas of the brain that are specialized for certain purposes? And yes, there are. So if we look at back here in the, this area right here, we know this is an occipital lobe back here, which processes visual information. We know that right here is the auditory systems of the brain, which process auditory. And here we have two strips of neural fibers. One does the sensory of the body. So there's an area for the nose, the mouth, the eyes, the arms, the, the, the legs and the such that sense things on those areas of the body. And then we have a motor strip that then responses to those sensations. So we have a nasal area, we have a lip area, an eye area and, and the like. And we know that this front cortical area is associated with human higher thinking such as uh, why does my wife love me? Or what is the solution to Pythagoras theorem, okay? This area of the brain regulates those types of thoughts, okay? The falsehood is can you tell it by the shape of your skull, okay? So if any of you have had babies um, or an infant or someone, you'll notice that there's a soft spot when an infant is born, it's at the top of their head, it usually goes away within three or four weeks. But the purpose of that small, that soft spot is to make it so that the infant's head can be squished enough to make it through the mother's uh, 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 uterus and through, and through the vaginal tract. But what was assumed back then is that this entire skull was at one point soft and that it melded to the areas of the brain that were developing associated with different personality traits, okay? And so when we're born, our skull is basically molded to the shape and the contours of our brain. And so it should be able to tell us something about personality and personality traits. Factor fiction, that one is fiction unless you damage a part of the skull that then damages part of the cortical or brain region that it comes from, okay? Then you do lose some type of functioning which you can say that is associated with that individual. So is this a pseudo-psychology? The answer is yes. Why? Because really the shape of your skull, unless there's special circumstances, really doesn't tell you anything about your personality. And the areas of the brain that have specialized locations don't have personality traits, 
they have processing traits. So we have a visual processing area, auditory processing area. This area, this temporal area right here is associated with the combination of where you are in space, time, auditory, and visually. We have the two strips that sense and respond to different parts of the body. And we have these higher areas of the brain that deal with our social needs and, and higher order thinking. So right track, okay, yes, this probably made it so modern neuroscience and understanding of the brain happened, but it would be considered a pseudoscience because personality areas are not necessarily located within the brain, okay? Another example of pseudopsychology is palmistry, okay? Lines on your hand predict future or revealing personality traits. So I should stop right here with phrenology and even with palmistry and with even astronomy, which we'll talk about next. There is a university, I'm not remembering, Oklahoma or... It's one of the Midwestern universities. They have, a, they have a competition every year. And each year, the purse for that competition increases if the person previous to it didn't win that purse. This started in the 1970s. It includes an attorneys, it includes magicians, it includes psychologists, it includes uh, physiologists. And the challenge is, is if you can come to this location and pre actually predict someone's future, and if that future becomes true, you will win this purse of money. This started in the 1970s with $10,000. It is now somewhere in the $200,000 range because no one has ever won that purse by using any of these mystical, you know, palmetry, phrenology, astronomy to actually accurately predict someone's future. Okay, so why do I bring that up? It's because not even psychology is good at predicting people's future. And I'll put that out there and we'll learn that through this class. Um, but these all, different, all these different techniques have their certain flaws and as we move through the class, you'll actually see some of the flaws within the field of psychology that you'll go, uh, Dr. Peterson, that sounds a lot like palmistry or phrenology, and uh, I probably won't disagree with you. Okay, but palmistry, let's go through this because this is one of the other techniques that have been used with this group in the Midwest. It's about telling the lines in your hand and what that tells you about your personality, about your future, how long you'll live, fact or fiction? Again, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> okay. The time that palmistry came up, it came up in the times when the Greek empires were starting to be built. It was coming up in a time where farming became bigger than hunting and gathering and, and, and individuals started to notice that you can tell the health of a tree or a plant by the markings in those trees and plants. So you can tell how good a tree has grown through the years by the width of the rings in the tree. 
You can tell whether a plant is going to survive by the different wrinkles and the different breaks in it. And so this group came up with the idea that humans are much like nature. We are nature and that we obey the same rules as nature. So the cracks in our skins and everything must tell us something about where we've been and where we're going, how hardy we are in order to survive this world, how, how well will we be? And that's the idea behind palmistry, okay? Now, has it ever panned out that you can tell just by a length in someone's hand how long they'll live or how intelligent they are or ambitious? No, the, the truth is not. But is there some truth to the idea that humans are separate from nature and that nature doesn't influ influence humans and humans influence nature? The answer to this is where palmistry got it right is that we have this deep connection with our environment and our situation. And when we get to social psychology, when we're talking about human interactions, we will see that much of human behavior is better predicted by where the person is in their situation, in their environment here on earth, than whether I can measure your IQ and see if it's over the mean of 100, or if I can measure your um, uh, acclimate for mathematics, could I predict what you'll do better by your living situation, the environment you're in versus your intelligence level and all that? Yes, the answer to that is very clearly yes. That's where palmistry got it right. Does it have anything to do with the markings on our hands? There's no scientific evidence for that, but that's where it would be called a, a pseudo-psychology, okay? Uh, one other uh, type of pseudo-psychology is graphology, personality traits revealed from your handwriting. So if we look at this one right here, uh, we can see that if you put this, you tend to be argumentative. If you put this type of T, you, you directive. This was hugely used by the FBI. This was hugely used by the FBI. Um, and still is in use. And so is palmistry, I should mention. Um, but has it ever resulted in a a, a discovery by chance, yes, but was it deliberately? Probably not. Does your handwriting reveal anything about your personality trait? The scientific evidence suggests not, um, that uh, the most random writing can be just that random. Um, I'm thankful for that because I write very horribly, okay? Another uh, kind of pseudo-psychology is astrology. Okay, I should go back to here <laughs> because I didn't put the, 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 the evidence for why this idea was uh, uh, brought across. We do know that humans express themselves through language and writing and that what a person writes tells a lot about them. However, the style in which someone writes, how you write, 
really has shown not to be very predictive about who you are. So the truth of graphology is, is that language is important and we should listen to how people write and talk. The way they write probably is not the best source of our time. Okay, so that's the, the fact and the fiction behind graphology. Astrology is this idea that the positions of the stars when you are born determine personality traits that affect then affect your order, your, your behavior. I love reading these. I love reading these at, at uh, uh, I see these a lot at like Chinese restaurant with the Chinese New Year and, and the rabbit and those. Uh, I, I, uh, every morning I watch, I listen with my wife, uh, this John Jay and Rich, and they do this, you know, what is your date of birth? And they give that astrology prediction. And it's all fun and it's all good. However, the issue with astrology is that the astrological maps were developed roughly about 7,000 years ago. In that seven years, the stars in the skies have roughly shifted about six months. So all along, I'll give me, give me as an example, all along, I have been told I'm a Leo because I was born in July. But if being born under my stars is what's important, I'm not actually a Leo. I'm actually an Aquarius based on where the position of the stars are in the sky today. So when I listen to John Jay and Rich or, or any of these things, I always have to adjust what they're saying by about six months, because if astrology is correct, I'm not a Leo, I'm an Aquarius. And therefore all along, I've been listening to the wrong prediction about my personality and about what's happening to me, okay? Now, <laughs> again, fact and fiction. Is there, is there precedence to say that the time and place in which a person is born matters? The answer is yes. Because we know if, if we give a month by month example, we know that the majority of pro baseball players and pro hockey players were born in the month of late December into early February. Okay. But it's not due to their birth date. It's due to when a recruitment and the ability to start playing starts. See, if you're born in sports, if in, in those two sports, if you're born in December to early February, you will have a year's more practice than anyone born in any of the other months. And that advantage of practice is what creates our, our major league uh, sports players, at least in those two fields. Um, a lot has been made, uh, a book was, was written quite a while ago about, uh, by uh, Malcolm Maswell, Malcolm, 
I can't remember his last name, Malcolm. We'll just call him Malcolm for right now. Um, about great, the, the great man myth. The great man myth is that great, great men and women are born, they're not made, okay? But if we look at analysis of all of the great leaders in our past, all the people who have done it and made it, they were born in a certain place and a certain time which made them great, not them themselves. And a, a probably a good example of this is Bill Gates. All right, Bill Gates, multi-billionaire, uh, owner of Microsoft, all of those things, and he did all of that. And everyone says he was a great leader, he was a great mentor, he was great at computers, but if we analyze his time and place, we see a different story because we see him born in a time and place where if you wanted to get on a computer, you had to go to a location and you had to have a card that you inserted into the computer that would time you out after 30 or 60 minutes. And these were very popular, especially in elementary schools when computers started to become come out. But Bill Gates was born into a very fortunate family who bought his elementary and middle school and high school, not only a computer, they bought them a computer lab with the stipulation that their son Bill's time would not be timed out. So when Bill Gates graduated from high school, he clocked more time on a computer than most people at that time with a PhD in computer information science had. So great man or just born to the right family in the right time and the right place. And we could look at all of these, uh, MLK, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. would have not gotten as much attention today as if he wasn't who he was in the time he was in the 60s. And these are all analyses that we have to do. And this is where astrology does get, that, 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 that is kind of some of the truth behind astrology is that when you're born, who you're born to, and whatever advantages you have in that moment do determine or partly determine your life path. Not totally, but partly. And so astrology gets it correct that when we're born, we're born into a certain time and a place, and that certain time and place will, you know, um, give us advantages and disadvantages and determine where we go in our life course, okay? So those are all um, examples of what we call pseudo-psychologies. And why do they exist, okay? One, as we just went through, there is evidence, I should not probably use the word truth, there is evidence for each one of those and the reasoning behind them. But some of the reasons why they continue are uh, from, from at least people who have studied these other 
the, the, these type of uh, pseudo psychologies is one, this idea of uncritical acceptance. And this is a tendency to believe positive or flattering descriptions of yourself. And if you read a lot of the astrology and palmetry, they all term things in the positive. They don't ever tell you what bad is going to happen. They just tell you, be careful because of your remarkable abilities. Confirmation bias is the tendency to notice and remember information that confirms our expectations and ignore the discrepancies. And sometimes when we ignore the discrepancies, it's completely on an unconscious level. We're not even aware that we ignored those discrepancies. The, probably the best example of confirmation bias was research done in the 90s, early 2000s, where they had participants come in and they gave them this bogus personality test. And after the personality test, they would either randomly using a coin, they would either say, you're gonna have a bad day or you're gonna have a good day, all right? Now, before this, with all the participants, they set it up where the individual during that day, because it was in this college setting where it was a, it was a campus type community where things could be controlled somewhat. They, they actually went through and they, 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 with each of the participants, they made sure that those individuals would get equal positive information and equal negative information. And then the next day or the end of the day, they'd bring them back and they would ask them to recall all of the good events and all of the bad events during that day. And what they found is, is that people that were told on a bogus personality test that they were going to have a good day, the majority of what they reported was all of the positive experience that they experienced. Yeah, my instructor said I did really good in class today. My girlfriend said, yes, you're the greatest, blah, blah, blah. And they only remembered a few of the negative things. The people who were told they're going to have a bad day had a completely bad day. And believe it or not, they did not recall any of the positive things that were told to them that day. And this, this experiment is an example of confirmation bias. When we have a belief about how something is going to happen, we have the tendency to only notice information that confirms that belief and either we ignore or don't even experience the information that disconfirms that belief or what that expectation is going to be. And that's what we call the confirmation bias. And then we have the Barnum effect, the tendency to consider personal descriptions accurate if stated in general terms. And if you ever read a, a astrology thing or a palmistry thing, they never give you details. They never tell you who or what. It's all put in very general uh, conformatory uh, descriptions. And in those contexts, we have the tendency to believe those versus someone giving details, all right? And, you know, it kind of makes sense in a lot of ways, because, you know, if someone said, uh, um, uh, you know, you had a good day, I would go, okay, thank you. Um, 
Or let me give you a better example of the Barnum effect. If, if someone came up to you and said, hey, you're really beautiful. We tend to be very flattered about that. Or, hey, you're really intelligent. You did awesome in class today. We tend to believe that. But I would challenge you after that happens, if you can, to ask why. All right. And the more and more details that the individual provides, the less and less we believe them, even if it supports that general idea, that, that general premise that they started with. And that's the Barnum effect. The more details presented, the less likely individuals are to believe what's being told about them. Okay. And these are the reasons why I think a lot of uh, the pseudo-psychologies exist, but I'm going to say this, and this is why I'm bringing it up at this lecture point, is that psychology has also produced results that continue to exist, even though they've been disproven. And I think I brought them up in this class, and we don't need to go on before, such as learning styles and those types of things, which have been totally debunked, but still exist within our general idea. So what I want to do in this class is for everyone to come over, get over these three general biases that we have and challenge everything that is presented to you. Challenge it all. Make sure you know the, the, the truth before you're satisfied with an answer from someone. Okay. All right. Is everyone doing okay? Is there any questions? No question. No I'm questions. good, thank you. Okay, all right, all right. So let's go on for just a few minutes, maybe another 30 minutes or so, and let's start on the history of psychology, at least from the Western perspective. Now, I did post some articles on indigenous psychology and Native American psychology. And as I think I noted in our last lecture, it is a really good movement. It's a powerful movement, but you know, it is really, really in its infancy. It really started in the 1980s where, where uh, uh, some, some Native American psychologists started to graduate and come out and say, you know, this isn't the only way to look at the philosophies of psychology. So I just wanna put that out there to make sure we read those articles uh, and understand them. We're gonna look at this kind of from the Western perspective because this is kind of what the mainstream uh, psychologists really kind of, I shouldn't even say mainstream, it's just Western psychology kind of looks at when looking at different questions uh, within psychology, okay? And we're gonna start with Plato and Aristotle. All right. These are two Greek philosophers. We're talking uh, 428 to 322 BC. So we're talking quite a ways back, uh, 25, 2300 years ago. Um, and we're going to come into what's considered the Enlightenment years within, within uh, history in the Western world and the, the evolution of Greek thought, okay? And 
two individuals are going to raise a question that is still of debate today. One of the individuals is named Plato, the other name is Aristotle. Uh, they were both students of a famous uh, philosopher known as so Socrates, who, um, uh, who, who was kind of the father of Western philosophy. Uh, and both of these individuals went to their school, went to his school to learn from him. And when he was aging, they, he kind of assumed, both of them assumed that they would inherit uh, 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 his, his school, Socrates' school. But when uh, Socrates passed away, he left his school to Plato and Aristotle was kind of left out of the, the, the realm. So what happened is a schism. Uh, Plato stayed where he was at, Aristotle left to start his own school, okay? And they're going to come up with two very different impressions about where personality, intelligence, um, are acclimated to the world, who we are comes from, okay? And they're gonna come from two different kind of philosophies. One is Plato, who was very much in the aristocratic type of idea in that he noticed that in kingdoms during the time that a kingdom was left from one blood to the next blood, from father to son or father to daughter. But the aristocrats, the, the, the people who prospered, kept their bloodline. Whereas those who were of what was considered a lower nature, the impoverished people, also had their own bloodline. So he argued that what makes a human human is their nature, what they're born with, the blood in them. Today, we would call this not necessarily their bloodline, but their genetic line, their inheritance. And that there, can't, there has to be a separation between bloodlines because you wouldn't want someone in an impoverished situation, according to Plato, to try and rule over a kingdom because then that individual would just ruin that kingdom. Just like you couldn't take an aristocrat and put them in an impoverished situation and expect them to survive, okay? So what Plato is gonna argue is that we are born with every, all our faculties, our intelligence level, our personality levels, our temperament, all of those things are born with us, okay? Aristotle, as he leaves to uh, his new school or to his own journey, he actually didn't go directly and create a school. He spent some time traveling and experimenting. And during this time, he's going in the Western world is he's gonna come up with our first um, schematic of, of, of plants and animals. So he's going to start to create what makes a dog versus a cat, and he's going to catalog those. What makes a fern versus a different leaved plant, okay? What makes one tree different from another tree? And he's going to catalog all these, he's, and he's going to start, in at least in the Western world, 
the, the, the schematics of what makes a dog a dog, a cat a cat, a horse a horse, a plant a plant, okay? In this journey, what he's going to notice is that the health of a plant is completely determined by its environment. If it gets too much sun, it gets burnt. If it gets too much water, it waterlogs and drips. If it gets too much of this, too little of that, and it's not until it finds its perfect environment that it really thrives and it really becomes what it's meant to be. And so unlike Plato, Aristotle is going to argue for the nurture perspective. The nurture perspective is that who we are are based upon our, where we exist and our environment our teachers, our parents, that who we are are due to our experiences, not our innate abilities, okay? So, <laughs> so does, do both of you understand this nature versus nurture debate as it was explained by Plato and Aristotle? Let me check in really quick. I kind of understand, yeah. Okay. So for the Aristotle one, I understand that. Um, can you explain the nature one again? Um, you know, you were saying something about the aristocratic, um, how, you know, they kept, kept the bloodline, but um, what, what's the argument there? So, so look, in order to explain that, and I understand where you're coming from, let me bring it to modern terms, okay? Plato would state in modern terms that who we are is completely and totally determined by our genetics. Aristotle, on the other hand, believed that er who we are, are is based on our experiences. Does that make more sense? Yes, it does. Thank okay. you. You're welcome. So, the question becomes is where are we on this debate today? It's actually still a debate. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and let me explain a, a couple reasons why. And I think we can end with this one tonight because the other ones might take a little bit longer to, 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 to delve into. So in the 1970s, there was something called the Minnesota Twin Studies where they took monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins who were separated at birth to determine how similar they are. So let me get th go through this. So a monozygotic twin are two individuals that were born from the same egg. So genetically, they're exactly the same. Dizygotic twins are when two separate eggs got fertilized. And so the only thing that they share is mom's womb and the time they were born, but pretty much they're just like any other kind of sibling. They're, they're basically a sibling, okay? And what they did in the Minnesota studies is that they they, they, they wanted to know how much intelligence is inherited genetically 
versus because of the environment, because of, because of nurture, okay? And so they followed these, these twins that were separated at birth. And initially, they did find an association between two twins that were separated that were monozygotic and their IQ scores. And this started a revolution in psychology and biology to say, hey, there is a lot of things that are genetically born because if two totally separate, genetically same people have the same IQ, it has to be due to nature and genetics, not due to the environment. Okay, you follow me so far? Recently, we've done a reanalysis of that data because what the researchers found is in the original analysis, they never tested the similarity between dizygotic twins, meaning two twins who were born at the same time but were fertilized in two separate eggs. And so recently we did a reanalysis of, of those original twin studies. And what we found is, is that dizygotic twins have the same or similar association with intelligence levels as monozygotic twins. Meaning that it can't necessarily be due to genetics, but something else or a combination of the both. Because if both can have that, then they both must be working in the same mechanism, okay? From this example, this is where we are right now, is that we, we don't think, other than one personality trait, which is temperament, there's not much that we qualify as purely genetic versus purely nurture. We're at a point where we feel it's a combination of both. And the results we now have seen in the Minnesota study suggest that the environment treat children differently based upon their looks and their appeal. Because one of the things that was also reanalyzed in the Minnesota studies were things such as, um, I don't, I hate using this term with children, but I can't think of a different one. The attractiveness of the child. How be, I, I, okay. And they looked at that and they found that the truth of the matter is, is that yes, there were IQ propensities there in the place, but it had more to deal with how society treats people based on their looks than it did their actual genetics. Meaning that they found that children who were more beautiful tended to get more attention from their teachers, more positive attention from their parents, more uh, attention from society in general than less beautiful children. And that was associated with performance because we found that those children who got more attention because of the way they looked tended to score higher on things like IQ tests and cognitive tests. And so we see this, you see where nature comes in, what nature produced, 
but then it's how the environment reacts to that that probably really determines how that child is going to turn out, if that makes any sense. Okay. Um, so today, what we do when we talk about genetics, we talk about it in what's called in, in percentages. So for example, personalities traits depended upon the study that you read, uh, inherited personality traits range anywhere from 20 to about 60%. And then traits evolved out of experience is anywhere from 80 to 40%, depended upon the study you read. But if we average those out, it comes out to be about, you know, 40% of our personality we can contribute to genetics, about 60% we can contribute to experience. Um, but that's kind of where we're at right now is trying to express genetics versus uh, experience, nature versus nurtures, and we kind of try to do it with percentages rather than saying it's all nature or it's all nurture, okay? All right, I'm gonna stop here and ask if you both have any questions. Um, I don't have any questions, but um, that would be similar to, um, Maybe like in, on the in the indigenous perspective of somebody growing on and off the reservation, um, of you know somebody who lives, you know say like three miles in on the reservation on a border town versus somebody who um, lives five you know maybe four and a half hours in with no running water or electricity um, versus somebody that has somebody would that be more of like the the nurture side of it. Right, exactly. That would be a good example of what nurture would do. Yes, okay. that's a good example, Rachel. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? I was going to ask about the examples on Aristotle, mm -hmm. nature, but she explained it really well. So thank you, Rachel. Yeah, she did. Thank you, Rachel. All right, you two. So it's getting about 635. I don't think it'd be worth getting into our other subjects for tonight. So let's close up for tonight. And then we'll meet again on Tuesday and get through the rest of this material and start on research methods. And then let's see where we're at at that point. And then we'll go from there, okay? Okay. Um, are there any other assignments that we have to do for the weekend at all? Or is it just lecture for right now? Not this week, Rachel. I'll, I, I will start building and, and getting those assignments ready for you both uh, uh, this weekend and, and have them ready for you uh, starting next week. Okay, sweet. I just don't want to get behind and I'm like, oh crap, what do we do?